Thank you very much. It's uh, certainly a pleasure uh, to be here and an honor because I know of the uh, high standard and caliber of the speakers you have. And having gone through the uh, Korean War exhibit, I also know the uh, high caliber of, uh, of your exhibits. And I, I would like to thank uh, the various members of the staff who uh, treated me so well here uh, and have done such a good job uh, making a contribution to uh, air power history. And I especially want to uh, thank uh, uh, Brett Stoll uh, over at the, uh, the archives, who's been a great help to me, um, not only this week, but in, in past endeavors. Well, the Korean War came as a great shock to the American public, and it is truly a forgotten war wedged between World War II and the Vietnam War. Um, it was the first jet-to-jet aerial war. It was the largest jet-to-jet aerial war in terms of claims and, and of losses. Uh, but the battle for air superiority was the one bright spot uh, in, that, in that conflict. And, of course, the star of that conflict was the, the F-86. Uh, in my view, one of the prettiest airplanes that ever flew, an elegant aircraft, high-performing, and it proved itself in, in combat. Uh, the pilots of that airplane were celebrated and made heroes, as were the pilots in World War I and World War II. And if I can just take a moment for a little personal note here, um, I was an aviation enthusiast as a kid, making models, joining the Civil Air Patrol and the rest, and I knew of the F-86, uh, but I didn't get my first glimpse of it until the summer of 1956 when I was standing on the ramp at Lowry Field and an officer um, leaned over and a stern voice said, Gaze, gentlemen, gaze. And it was a, an F-86 landing, uh, a most impressive sight. Uh, a number of those officers had served in uh, Korea, and a few of them had actually uh, registered some, some claims, which was very heady stuff for a 17-year-old. And uh, you might understand why I, as well as most of my classmates, wanted to be uh, fighter pilots. So that's kind of the background um, to my connection with the F-86. I never got to fly it. I never became a fighter pilot. Um, but I still have this feeling of nostalgia. Uh, tonight I want to move the discussion beyond what I think is uh, the normal view uh, of the war, uh, which centers just on the aircraft and the machines. I hope to move it up a notch or so uh, to talk about some of the myths, some of the claims, some of the mysteries that are involved in this, uh, this endeavor. I want to discuss some of the recent scholarship, and I hope that uh, we eventually can get around to uh, answering many of the questions. Well, the first thing I want to do is to try to put this into context, uh, because I don't want you to get the idea that the only thing that happened in Korea had to do with the F-86. Uh, there was a lot more going on. And... Uh, we can see this numerically in that the F-86 action, the air superiority action, was only a small part of the air war. In terms of sorties, uh, the air, superior, air superiority sorties were only three-quarters the number of close air support sorties. And the air superiority sorties were only one-third of the sorties that the Air Force flew in interdiction. So it was a very small part of the war, but a very important uh, part of the war. And in terms of flying hours, 
The F-86 only flew three-fifths of the flying hours, as did its two rivals, the F-80 and the F-84. In losses, the F-86 units only lost one-third as many casualties as did the F-80 units, and only one-half as many as the F-84 units. So you can get some idea, uh, I hope, the context of, of this story. Well, the F-86 uh, started off, um, see if this thing will work for me, there we go, as a straight-wing fighter, and as you can see, looking very much like an F-84, and probably had it gone into service this way, would have performed about that same way. Uh, North American realized this, uh, and building on uh, information that came out during the war through wind tunnel tests, and particularly uh, with the experience that they gained from the ME-262, which saw combat in World War II, they innovated by sweeping back the wing. The other influence of the ME-262 on the F-86 had to do with uh, using wing slats, um, which is, as you, many of you know, is an extension of the leading edge, which at low air speeds extends forward, which lowered the speeds that were required for takeoff, landing, and approaches, which made it a much safer aircraft. So clearly there was a German influence uh, with the F-86. The F-86 first flew, I'm going in the wrong direction here. Well, someone's going to have to give me a hand. Oh, here we go. Sorry, I hit the wrong button. This is the, uh, the, uh, the model that uh, first flew. This is the experimental uh, F-86, which first flew in October of 1947. You can see its pitot uh, tube and the fact that it, it does not have any, uh, have any armor, uh, armament. It was uh, flown by um, the man on the left, a test pilot, North American test pilot, George Wheaties Welch. And this photograph, he's in the photograph with Gabby Gabreski. Uh, they both flew on the 7th of December, 1941. They both got up. Uh, Gabreski didn't get any uh, claims that day, um, but uh, Wheaties Welch claimed four, was nominated for the Medal of Honor, which he did not get. And Welch goes on to claim a total of 16 Japanese aircraft on uh, 348 combat missions. Um, I should also mention at this time, uh, there are indications that Welch also got the F-86 through the sound barrier uh, a few weeks prior to uh, the better documented and the more famous flight by Chuck Yeager. Uh, he did this in, in a dive because the F-86 could go supersonic uh, in a dive. There were three variants of the F-86 that flew in uh, Korea. Uh, the A model, which was... Uh, superseded by the uh, E model in, uh, in mid-1951. Uh, the uh, E model looked the same as the A model, weighed about 480 pounds more, which decreased performance, uh, but it, it had an all-flying tail. That is that when the elevator was uh, depressed, the entire horizontal tail moved, which gave the aircraft a lot more maneuverability uh, than the previous model. So although 
it, there were some trade-offs involved. It was a better handling aircraft. Uh, the third uh, variant was the F-86F, which comes into service in uh, mid-1952. And it was the, uh, the new improved version. It had a more powerful engine. It also had a redesigned wing. Uh, and the wing was the so-called 6-3 wing, which was six inches longer at the cord, and it was uh, three inches longer to tip, so it was slightly larger. It deleted the, sl the wing slats, and as you can see in the corner here, it uh, had a small wing fence. Uh, this improved its performance. However, it also increased the uh, stall speed by about 20 knots, uh, but as one pilot correctly noted, you don't win dogfights in the traffic pattern. Uh, and this was the ultimate uh, F-86 that saw action in, in Korea. Uh, the F-86 was uh, well known as an honest aircraft, a fine, uh, flying aircraft, uh, but there were flying safety issues, uh, particularly when the Air Force was transitioning into jets at this point. Uh, the F-86 had a particularly weak nose gear, which caused problems. Um, but I would point out to you that... Um, as this graphic, I hope, makes clear, the F-86 had the best uh, uh, flying safety record of those jets. As you can see on the right, whether, whatever metric you use of um, major accidents or fatal accidents or wrecked aircraft, it was a much safer aircraft than either the F-84 or the F-80, uh, its two rivals at that time. And it had approximately the same flying safety record as the uh, F-51, which was the standard Air Force fighter uh, of, of the day. The, um, there were a number of efforts made to improve the performance of the F-86. There was an effort uh, to reduce its weight. Uh, there was an effort to uh, tweak the engine by adding uh, alcohol water injection. Uh, there was an effort to add uh, a liquid rocket engines. Uh, there was also an effort made uh, to put air-to-air -air refueling. Uh, they tried both the probe and drogue system, and I know that occurred during the Korean War, and at some point, because this photograph is undated, they also tried uh, a flying boom system. Uh, none of these systems were put into effect in the F-86 uh, during the Korean War, although air-to-air -air refueling was used by other aircraft. Uh, the, another effort that was made... Uh, was with solid rocket propellants. In the uh, summer of 1952, they attached three 1,000-pound rocket boosters uh, to the F-86. And if these were fired simultaneously, they could boost uh, airspeed by 20 knots uh, for 16 seconds. Uh, they flew these on over 300 missions, uh, on which about six MiGs were knocked down two of which were attributed to having this extra uh, power. Um, but for a variety of reasons, it was not put into service. Uh, the second effort that was made that was combat tested was to upgun uh, the F-86. The F-86's initial armament was with six 50 caliber machine guns, which was the standard armament from, from World War II. And I think here the Air Force has to take uh, some hits for not improving the, the armament. Because from the very start in Korea, pilots complained that they didn't have enough firepower. Uh, 
Uh, so the effort that was made was to upgrade it with uh, 20 millimeter cannons and uh, Project Gun Valve, in which they put uh, four 20 millimeter cannons of German design on the aircraft. And in early 1953, these were combat tested over uh, Korea. On 284 missions, uh, they knocked down uh, six MiGs, uh, but the 20 millimeters proved to be um, less reliable in the 50s, and the 20 millimeters had an additional problem, which was from the gun gases. The 20 millimeters generated about four times as much gun gases as the 50 calibers, and there were 20 instances of engines stalling out. Uh, one aircraft was lost because of this. And it turns out, again, the Air Force had messed up. They had tested uh, Project Gunval over the states, but only up to 25,000 feet, uh, whereas the aerial combat in Korea initially took place at much higher altitudes where um, stalls were much more uh, likely to, to occur. So the 20 millimeters were not put into service uh, in Korea, although they later were to arm the uh, F-86H and, of course, in, on other Air Force aircraft as well. Uh, another technology that should be mentioned that, uh, that is important was the installation of a radar ranging gun sight into the um, F-86. Uh, these were hastily shipped over uh, to the theater and put into service and the haste uh, turned out to be detrimental in that the gun sights proved to be unreliable. Unreliable because of a, a lack of parts Unreliable because the pilots weren't properly trained in its use. Uh, the maintenance people weren't properly trained. So there were a whole bunch of problems with uh, this device. Although when it worked, it really helped a lot. And then we had an interesting incident when um, senior or older pilots who were aces were asked about this gun sight and what they should do about it. They wanted to get rid of it. They, they thought it was just 200 pounds of extra weight and really wasn't necessary. And uh, Gabreski, um, the, you know, the top American ace in Germany in World War II, uh, supposedly said, I can put a wad of chewing gum on the windscreen and do just as well. And he probably could. But the younger pilots, the younger aces, um, they were all for this. And they made the point that for the average pilot, that this gun sight would make them better marksmen and without having all the experience. So this caused some, some real problems, but the Air Force did hold on to the gun sight and it, it proved out in the long run. Uh, the other innovation uh, that was used, which was a great advantage for um, American pilots in Korea, was the uh, G-suit. Uh, the G-suit, uh, which inflates when the pilot pulls harsh maneuvers uh, to uh, prevent blackout, uh, was pneumatically inflated around the uh, waist, around the thighs, and around the calves, and it increased the pilot's uh, resistance to Gs between 1 and 2 Gs. Um, what's significant here is that the F-86s had these radar-ranging gun sights, and our pilots had G-suits. Uh, the pilots we faced had neither which gave us a significant advantage. An advantage um, which can be seen by the fact that the one thing that the Russians wanted most 
was to get our gun sight and to get our G-suits, which I, th- I find very interesting. Well, on the other side of the hill, the uh, Soviets uh, were building jets as well, but they get into the game late. They don't fly their, their first jet until April 1946. But then all of a sudden they receive a bonanza from our ally, the British, who in September of 1946 sell the Soviets their top-of-the-line, state-of-the-art jet engine, which is going to go on to power the, the MiG-15. And the MiG-15 first flies in December 1947, only a few months after the first flight of the F-86. Uh, and these two aircraft, in uh, a number of ways, are, are, are similar, uh, both having a swept wing of 35 degrees and both having a nose inlet. Uh, but this uh, photo doesn't really show it clearly. The F-86 has a low-mounted wing, the MiG-15 a mid-mounted wing. Uh, the MiG has the wing fences, and also it has the um, horizontal stabilizer halfway up, uh, the vertical stabilizer. The MiG-15 uh, was redlined at 0.292 Mach, so it could not go as fast as the F-86. And when it approached uh, its red line, it, the controls became stiffer and stiffer, and it was a much less stable aircraft. Whereas I've already mentioned, the F-86 could exceed the speed of sound in, in a dive. The MiG also had handling problems. It apparently was a tricky aircraft to fly. It stalled easily and then went into vicious spins. In 52 and 53, American pilots reported seeing 56 MiGs fall into spins, and they reported of those 56 incidents that 35 of the pilots either bailed out or were seen to crash. So this was an airplane that... Uh, was tricky, but it was in the Soviet style. It was simple, uh, it was rugged, it was effective, and for the task for which it was designed, it was designed as an interceptor. It was designed to knock down heavy bombers. It was designed to knock down B-29s, and in Korea it did just that. It was armed, and it had a, a normament problem as well. It was armed with one 37 millimeter and two 23 millimeter cannons. So it's kind of curious that both aircraft had armaments which were less than fully effective. But nevertheless, the MiG-15 surprised the West because it turned out in a number of areas to have superior performance to our best aircraft, uh, the F-86. Well, I won't recap the entire Korea War for you. Um, and again, I want to uh, compliment the curators here for the excellent exhibit. I, I went through the exhibit uh, this morning and um, I'm trying very hard not to be redundant um, because they've covered, they've taken, stolen most, most of my thunder here uh, and done it very effectively. Um, anyway, we, we quickly gained air superiority after our, our ground troops got thrown back. Uh, the North Koreans had about 120 World War II aircraft. And once we got into the fray, we quickly wiped them out and by the end of July had complete air superiority. Uh, the war turns around when uh, U- UN forces land in Incheon on the 15th of September, 1950. And MacArthur says the war is going to be over by Thanksgiving and the troops will be home for Christmas. And of course, that uh, didn't 
proved to be the case when the Chinese intervened uh, massively in, um, in November of 1950 uh, with ground troops covered by the MiG-15. And most of the fighting that we're talking about took place in this area, uh, the striped area, which is known as MiG Alley. Uh, the first MiGs were seen on the uh, 1st of November, uh, 1950. Uh, they were very quickly seen to be superior to the aircraft we had in the theater, uh, both the prop-powered fighters as well as the straight-wing jets. Um, and I guess I need to note here very quickly, we now know that these aircraft were pilots, piloted by Soviet pilots from regular Soviet units. Uh, the, the myth at the time that was uh, propagated at the time for diplomatic reasons, and I think lingers in the mind of many people, um, that it was mainly Chinese, it was Chinese pilots with a few Russian instructors. We knew as early as March of 51 from the radio inter intercepts uh, that these, these were Soviet. So initially we were going head to head with Soviet pilots, many of whom were veterans of World War II and, and well experienced. On the 8th of November, of 1950, uh, the first MiG-15 is shot down uh, by a F-80 pilot. And on that same day, the chief of staff of the Air Force, Hoyt Vandenberg, uh, orders an F-86 unit to go over uh, to Korea to make sure that we have the balance of power. And they send over the, uh, the fourth fighter group, uh, which was the linear descendant of the famous Eagle squadrons from, from World War II and the unit which in World War II uh, is given credit for destroying uh, the most German aircraft in the air and on the ground. So they go into action on the 15th of December. And then on the 17th of December, uh, the figure in, in the middle, Lieutenant Colonel uh, Bruce uh, Hinton, shoots down the MiG, uh, a MiG, the first MiG to fall to an F-86, the first of, of many. From the outset, we are terribly surprised to find the MiG has performance advantage over the F-86. Uh, because the two airplanes are powered by engines of similar thrust and the MiG is, is lighter uh, than the F-86, it has the advantage of greater acceleration, uh, superior rate of climb, and particularly superior ceiling. Uh, the F-86 has the advantage it can outdive uh, the MiG. It has better speed brakes. Uh, it has better visibility with its canopy and particularly its defrosting system, which you might think that's kind of a simple, you know, why would you mention that? But when you're going from 40,000 feet down to the deck in very brief time in humid conditions and your canopy frosts up, you know, you're in deep trouble. Uh, our defrosters work. The MiG-15s did not work very well at all. So there were a number of advantages that the Sabre had, particularly that it could transition from one maneuver to another quicker. It had better, better controls. Uh, on the 20th of May, 1951, James Jabara becomes the first American jet ace when he shoots down two airplanes, two MiGs, despite the fact that he had a hung-up uh, wing tank, which by policy he should have aborted the mission, but does not, and he gets the accolade of being the first American jet ace. Well, the battle for air superiority increases as the communists pump in more 
aircraft. Uh, the Soviets are joined by both Chinese and North Korean pilots towards the end of 1951. And to uh, right that balance, uh, we send over the F-86E, which I've mentioned, the, the upgrade to the original uh, F-86 in mid-1951. And then uh, at, in December of 1951, a second F-86 unit is formed. And this is the uh, 51st Fighter Group, which is distinguished by the checkerboard tail. It had been an F-80 outfit, and they were transitioned into uh, F-86s. So we upped the ante, and now we have two F-86 um, fighter groups that are involved. Well, the increase of numbers and the uh, introduction of the F-86E leads to the fact that we are able to knock down a greater number of MiG-15s. Uh, and this graphic, I hope, makes this clear. Uh, in 1951, we knocked down an average of 18 MiGs a month. In 1952, we knocked down an average of 31 MiGs a month. And in the, in the seven months of 1953, we knocked down 41 MiGs a month, with the top month being June of 1953, right before the war was over, when we claimed 78. So these were two factors, more F-86s, uh, F-86E. Other factors were the fact that the Russians were rotating out their more experienced units and the new pilots that were coming in were less experienced. The Chinese, the North Korean pilots uh, were less experienced. Uh, so these all played a factor. But I would emphasize another factor which um, is not well known by most people. And that is the intrusions of American pilots into China. Now, the conventional wisdom holds that there were some intrusions, but these were done by either rogue fighter pilots or mid-crazy fighter pilots or some poor guy who was you know, lost in the weather and, and mistakenly crossed the river. Um, but, you know, it, was, it, wasn't, it was infrequent and it was only done by accident. Um, that's not the case. Uh, our intrusions into China were frequent. And they were well known by the high command up through Tokyo. Now, one of the uh, F-86 group commanders recounts the story that he was called in and chewed out because the reports that the uh, F-86 had, had gone into China. And after General Everest left the room, he, he sighed a sign of relief. And then Everest apparently pokes his head back in and points his finger at this poor colonel and says, and damn it. If you're going to fly into China, turn off your damn IFF. <laughs> the IFF, of course, is the identification friend of foe, the uh, radar device, which allowed, if it was turned on, uh, allowed ground stations to know where American pilots were. Um, so Everest knew about these intrusions. Field grade officers, wing commanders, group commanders, squadron commanders, not only condoned this, but they led missions into Korea, or excuse me, into China. So there were a lot of action over China. My research indicates that probably half of our aces, half of the 40 F-86 aces, claimed at least one MiG over China. And of the 11 top aces, these are the ones who got 10 or more victories, 
nine of the eleven got at least one victory. So I think, you know, and of course this stuff is not documented, you know. So we don't have any documents, but I interviewed uh, about 60 F-86 pilots as well as if you read their memoirs and, and you'll, you'll see this. Uh, some of these pilots believe that uh, they had the right of hot pursuit. Um, and although that was approved all the way up the chain of command, it was never approved from Washington. They never had the right of hot uh, pursuit. So, there were a lot of intrusions. From what I've been able to find out, possibly only three pilots were punished uh, for flying into China. Documentation is, uh, is sketchy, but apparently Joseph McConnell, who I'll mention a little bit later, apparently was grounded for two weeks. Another uh, uh, ace, a double ace, Lonnie Moore, uh, was sent home um, very rapidly for having uh, gone into over China. Uh, and again, this is sketchy. Uh, the third instance, uh, Dolph Overton, we know more about because I interviewed Overton, so face to face. Overton had flown one tour in F-84s and then got into F-86s. Uh, he goes to a radar station and sits down with the radar set and figures out where the uh, communist landing pattern is. And what he does, he goes up and he starts to orbit the Chinese landing pattern and is therefore able to shoot down five MiGs in four days. He becomes the quickest, the quickest ace. But unfortunately for Overton, his timing was bad. And as you know in life, Timing is probably everything. Turns out that on one of these days, a squadron commander had been shot down 100 miles inside of China. So that got people's attention. And the other uh, fact was that on one of these missions, a UN uh, fact-finding team was traveling across China. And they look up and there's a dogfight going on in China. So they send rockets and, of course, you know, it all goes downhill. And a staff officer from Tokyo comes over and interviews the pilots that flew that day. And when Overton was asked, did you fly into China? He admits that he did. They shipped him home immediately. Uh, they stripped him of his medals, which he did not get until about a decade ago. And they even tried to get, uh, get rid of his, his kill credits as well. But those, that's the only instances that I know of, uh, of pilots being, being, being punished. Okay, another part of the story which you know part of because the museum is part of was the exploita exploitation of uh, this equipment uh, by both sides. In April of 1951, we found out that a, a MiG had crashed land deep inside of North Korea, about 35 miles inland and north of Pyongyang. Uh, we sent in a, uh, a team that had been specially trained and they go about ripping apart the engine and parts of the engine. They get the whole ampanage into this helicopter before they come under ground fire until they scoot out of there. And then a couple of months later, uh, in June of 1951, another MiG is seen to go down in the mudflats off of North Korea. So we send in a, um, a small group of naval vessels, Royal Navy, U.S., and ROK. And these, are some, these poor photographs are of, of them salvaging parts of this. And they're able to get out, uh, essentially, uh, the engine. So we were able to get some pieces of, uh, of the MiG-15. But it's not until March of 1953 that a uh, Polish defector brings a, uh, a MiG into Denmark, 
our intelligence people get a hold of this, take photographs, they disassemble it, and then reassemble it before they give it back to the Poles. Uh, so that was the first one we got to see, you know, up close and personal. Perhaps as a result of this, the next month in April 1953, a project is started in the theater called Project Mula, uh, where we offer $100,000 to a communist pilot to bring, bring in a MiG, and we drop a couple million leaflets, you know, all over the place. And lo and behold, uh, in September of 1953, a MiG-15 lands at Seoul, and I might quickly add that the, uh, the pilot indicates that he never heard of Project Mula. That was a complete surprise to him. And uh, that MiG was uh, uh, quickly taken down to Okinawa and flight tested. You can see here with the uh, F-86 uh, chase plane by five American pilots, including uh, Major General Albert Boyd. And you'll note here, and I want to bring this out to you, that uh, it was repainted in American markings. You know, at, at this point, and I don't know uh, how long it stayed in American markings, but as you know, this is the airplane that's uh, currently on display uh, not too far from here, uh, back in its um, North Korean markings. And what we found out was that the intelligence we had was pretty well confirmed about the MiG's advantages and disadvantages. Uh, the only great story that I, I won't go into detail, but Chuck Yeager tried to get the, uh, the MiG to go supersonic because there were rumors it could go supersonic took it up to the highest altitude he could go at, full power, and he doesn't go straight down, he goes down at an angle because the nose tucked under and tried to get it to supersonic and it, it wouldn't go supersonic. Um, and I guess he was lucky to, to survive. The communists tried to get F-86s. As I mentioned, they wanted the gun sight, they wanted the G-suit, but they wanted an F-86. Uh, they organized a unit in uh, April of 51, of test pilots trying to capture a MiG, uh, an F-86, and they failed miserably at that. Uh, but then, uh, a few months later, in October of 51, an F-86 gets shot up. The pilot can't eject, so he's forced to crash land uh, a MiG on the mudflats, excuse me, the F-86 on the mudflats. The pilot is rescued, but the communists get the entire aircraft, and they're able to take it back. Uh, later, in uh, May of 52, a second F-86 crash lands, and they get that one as well. According to Soviet records, they never flew the, the F-86. They certainly took it apart and examined it, but they, but they never flew it. Uh, one last point I want to make here. Um, there are rumors that American F-86 pilots were held after the war. And this is the, kind of the Rambo scenario. Um, bear in mind that at the end of the Korean War, 13,000 Americans were declared missing in action. And I just saw a newspaper clipping a couple, couple months ago which stated that there were still 8,000 MIAs from the Korean War. At the end of the war, 220 Air Force crew members were released from captivity, including 28 F-86 pilots. Um, nevertheless, uh, there were congressional hearings in 1996 where this issue was explored with all kinds of fragmentary third party um, information that pilots were seen, etc., etc., but no smoking gun. And I see no evidence and I am of the belief that that just did not occur. Okay, to change without much of a segue, 
uh, one of the issues of the war has to do with numbers. And I was always under the impression that the F-86s were terribly outnumbered in the war. Now, they were outnumbered, but it turns out not so terribly. Uh, the bar on, on the left is uh, official um, numbers, uh, the blue being uh, the F-86 sorties, and the red being the Chinese and Soviet sorties. And this comes out to uh, an advantage to the communists of about three F-86 sorties for every four uh, MiG-15 sorties. And of course, you have to add in the, the North Korean. As far as sightings, uh, that's an approximation. But the most important is the, the, the bars on the right of those engaged. And these are Air Force figures. Uh, and it comes out that uh, about three F-86s engaged about four MiG-15. So they were outnumbered, but it's not, you know, astronomically, as you might, might think. Uh, the more controversial or the most controversial numbers, however, have to do with claims and losses. Now, claims have always been a problem in aviation history, uh, and, and understandably so in, in the fast action. Obviously, pilots have other things to do besides, you know, see what happens to the guy that he's just shot up. So this has always been a problem. But uh, in the Korean War, it was an especial problem. The bar on the left are U.S. figures. The F-86s claimed 800 MiG-15s. In addition to those 800, uh, there were another uh, 36 MiGs claimed by other Air Force aircraft, and then Marines and Navy pilots and Marine and Navy aircraft claimed nine. But I, I just want you to look at the F-86s, the 800 claimed by them. The U.S. Air Force admits to having lost about 210 F-86s, uh, but only about half of those to enemy action. And if you look uh, at those numbers and put them together, I think it's fairly certain that we lost approximately 100 F-86s in air-to-air -air combat or a, a claim to loss ratio of about 8 to 1. No big deal. The problem is when we look at the Chinese and the Soviet figures because the Chinese and the Soviets, they claim to have knocked down 860 uh, F-86s uh, then, of course, you have to add on the North Korean. Uh, they do admit to having lost about 540. Uh, my point is that there's such a discrepancy between the, um, the claims that the Soviets make and the Chinese make and the aircraft we lost, uh, not only to completely frustrate the researcher, uh, but to throw their, their numbers into discredit. Um, so unless you believe there was a conspiracy by the U.S. Air Force uh, to, to conceal F-86 losses, and I see absolutely no evidence of this, and I've looked you know, through the records, uh, I don't believe in conspiracies, whether it's um, Pearl Harbor or Roswell or 9-11. Um, you can't reconcile this difference. Okay, then. Uh, so you have the issue of numbers. Then we get, we finally get to the aces, and there's a, an excellent painting downstairs that you have on display, which is from this photograph, which is five of the, uh, of the top aces of the fourth fighter group. Um, and from left to right is Lonnie Moore, uh, Vermont Garrison, uh, James Johnson, and, and they're actually standing in front of his F-86, although you'll see only nine credits on his airplane. Uh, next is uh, Ralph Parr, 
Parr got the last victory in the war, a very controversial kill um, that, that took place. And then finally on the right is James Jabara. The four, uh, the four of them got uh, 10 claims. Jabara got 15. So these are five of your, your, your top aces of the war. But a more formal photograph is this one, obviously taken in Washington, uh, appropriately under the uh, view of Hap Arnold uh, with, my pointer doesn't work, but uh, the uh, Vice Chief of Staff, um, Nate Twining, Secretary of the Air Force, uh, Harold Talbot, Chief of Staff, Nate Twining, Boots Blase, who had uh, 10 victories, John Meyer, who had uh, 24 victories in, uh, over in German aircraft. He got two in, in Korea. And then in the front row, you can see Gabreski on the left. He had 28 over Germany and then six and a half in Korea. And to his right is Ivan Kinchlow, who had uh, five, five kills. So these are your, your, your top aces. But the uh, top ace of the war was uh, Joseph McConnell. McConnell was 31 years of age when he got his fifth kill and had about 1,100 flying hours. Ironically, McConnell had washed out of pilot training during World War II and flew as a navigator in B-24s in World War II. But then after the war, he goes on to earn his wings uh, and then uh, goes to Korea. After becoming an ace, he was shot down and uh, fished out of the Yellow Sea by Air Sea Rescue. On his last day in combat, he flies two missions and on those two missions, he knocks down three MiGs uh, to run his total up to 16 to become the top ace in the war. Uh, he got 16 MiGs on 106 missions. Uh, he was to be killed in a flying accident, test flying an F-86H in August of 1954. Uh, the second in rank order was uh, James Jabbar on the left. Uh, Jabbar uh, was 27 and a half when he got his fifth MiG and had about 1,800 flying hours. He had flown two tours in uh, World War II, uh, two tours, 168 combat missions, where he was credited with one and a half uh, German aircraft. He flies two tours in Korea, uh, where he runs his total up to 15 on 163 missions. And he was on an active duty when he was killed in an automobile accident in November of 1966. He's shaking hands here with Pete Fernandez. Uh, this is when Fernandez actually got his, his fifth kill. He's congratulating him on, on that. Uh, Fernandez was 28 at this point and had 2100, about 2,100 flying hours. Um, Fernandez had gotten his wings during World War II but did not see any combat but then became a gunnery instructor and had the reputation of being one of the best shots in the Air Force and apparently had uh, been an instructor to, to McConnell. Uh, Fernandez knocks down 14 and a half uh, MiGs on 125 missions. He retires from the Air Force as a major in 1963 and then is killed in a very controversial flying accident in October of 1980. And here are these uh, two of these aces, two of these top aces being congratulated by, by the president. Well, I'm not going to go through all the other aces, although that would be a lot of fun. But I do want to mention one other. Uh, the one non-Air Force F-86 ace of the war, and this was Marine Major John Bolt, 
Both had knocked down six Japanese airplanes in World War II and six MiGs. And this allows me to uh, introduce you to uh, a subject that we haven't talked about and is not in the display, and that is a number of exchange pilots who flew F-86s. He was one of at least 51 exchange pilots. I've been able to identify about 51. Uh, we had exchange pilots from the Marines, Navy, RAF, RCAF. And these 51 pilots knocked down, uh, I got credit for knocking down 40, 49 airplanes. Uh, the most famous of these probably, though, is someone, someone else near and dear to the heart of those of you from the great Buckeye State. If I can get the slide to move, and that, whoops, too fast. And that's uh, Marine Major John Glenn. Glenn got three victories uh, in ten days in uh, the last days of the war, and probably would have been an ace had the war, war gone on. I should also mention that, that Glenn admits in his memoirs that he got one of these airplanes over China. So I, I think we've, uh, we've touched the major points, um, at least the major points as I see them, of, of the story of, of the F-86, uh, the fight for air superiority in ACES. Uh, to summarize then, we now know that we initially were fighting against Soviet pilots in regular Soviet units. We now know that intrusions into China were frequent and were condoned and even led by top-ranking Air Force officers. Uh, unfortunately, we don't know any more about the claims issue except that it's very frustrating and I guess in my view, it's never going to be resolved. It's going to be one of those those terrible, terrible mysteries. Uh, but this is really not important, I don't think, because regardless of the, of the numbers, what's significant is that the F-86s won air superiority. Uh, and they won it um, with two exceptions, and I should make this clear to, so I don't get dinged in the Q&A about this. The two exceptions of the air superiority uh, was a so-called bed check Charlie. Uh, and these were communist pilots who flew obsolete World War II biplane trainers at night uh, that we were never able to effectively stop, which harassed our troops. And the other was in MiG Alley, uh, the MiGs were able to drive the B-29s out of the daytime skies and force the B-29s to bomb at night. And those are the two major exceptions. Otherwise, we had air superiority. And this air superiority was one not with superior numbers. It was one uh, not with a superior aircraft because the MiG did have its advantage. Uh, and it was one not in the way it was one in World War II. When in World War II we bombed out enemy fighter factories, we attacked enemy aircraft on the ground, which, by the way, was the one thing that was not done in Korea. We went into China, but we never shot up communist aircraft on the ground. But it was done an air-to-air. And it was done, of course, because of superior pilots. Pilots who were more experienced, pilots who were better trained, pilots who were more aggressive uh, than the pilots that, that they faced. And air superiority was significant in that it allowed uh, American allied UN missions to be flown in close superiority, uh, close air support, and in interdiction. Uh, there were few allied losses to enemy air. 
In fact, I'm pretty certain that we lost more Allied ground troops to friendly fire uh, than we did from communist aircraft. Where conversely, uh, we caused considerable casualties uh, to the communist and made his life very difficult with the air-to-air. -air. And I think really were a deciding factor in how that war uh, turned out. So air power was uh, significant in the outcome of the war and I think a, a proud episode in aviation history. Uh, the last thing I'd like to do before I conclude is to flash up uh, a little bibliography and maybe this is my teaching experience um, to leave something for those of you who are interested uh, in a, um, a macro view of the, war, of the war, particularly their superiority, I would recommend uh, a number of these books. So thank you very much. I look forward to the Q&A.